We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. And subscribe over to uh, on thefederalist.com to our premium members only section. Don't forget about that. I always forget to bring it up here, but it's such a lovely way to access Federalist content. You can see our staff commenting on uh, different articles uh, and you get access to all kinds of different stuff. So make sure to check that out. Speaking of how wonderful The Federalist is, we're joined today by Federalist senior contributor Inez Stepman, known best for her work with the Independent Women's Forum and also her podcast through the Independent Women's Forum called High Noon. You should absolutely check that podcast out. Some really, really spectacular, uh, high profile guests, uh, especially from the no, intelligentsia. I wasn't going to do it. You do. You thought I was going to then uh, sort of pit my, myself out, but <laughs> I meant from the, the broader like intelligentsia you get some great people in this so welcome back once again to federalist radio hour thanks for having me emily and indeed we have some fantastic guests like emily every month so <laughs> where i thought she was going I could tell from the time and as and I started the Zoom call that she was in something of a mood. And so I'm excited to see where this conversation takes us. Uh, we are without uh, Rachel Bovard. Obviously, she's back in the Senate. So we're doing the a version of the group chat. That's uh, not a group. It's just Inez and myself. We asked Rachel uh, to send proof of life. And bad news is that she didn't. Uh, <laughs> she, she did not send proof of life. Uh, so take that for what you will. Um, I think she's working pretty hard over there in the upper chamber. Inez has penned an essay in the American mind that fleshes out a very useful policy prescription to deal with student loan, for, to deal with the student loan debt crisis. And it is a crisis. And Inez, in fact, the first half of your essay is dedicated to explaining why this is a crisis that conservatives need to be urgently concerned about, it's something conservatives didn't really want to uh, spend serious political energy discussing, I think, for a very long time, um, because it's it's a quagmire. But tell us, Inez, why you think it is Republicans should be uh, sort of laser-like focused right now on uh, dealing with this problem. Well, we do have an opportunity in front of us because uh, likely Biden's uh, forgiveness plan, which is completely regressive, basically bails out the professional managerial class and the affluent on the backs of, of working class Americans and people who scraped uh, to actually pay off their loans. Um, so that that plan, uh, not for any specifics of, of the plan itself, but rather for how it was implemented without congressional authorization, is pretty likely to be struck down by the Supreme Court. Um, what isn't going to be struck down by the Supreme Court is the fact that Introducing the plan um, gave Democrats quite a boost during the midterms, right? There was a last minute uh, boost of young voters going to the polls. And it, it's a fair assumption that they were going to the polls because of this forgiveness plan that this was offered. And this actually excited um, young voters to come out and turn out for Democrats. So the first thing I think is sort of the the tough news that those on the right have to accept. Um, the first thing is I don't think the political pressure for a bailout of student loans is going away anytime soon. Um, before the pandemic, more than half of these loans uh, were predicted to go into default by 2023. Um, now we have no idea because we've had this pause that has already cost $100 billion um, on, on student loan payments for the last two and a half years. Um, 
So this is this is a huge problem, and and the debt burden actually is really affecting millennials and Gen Z, um, and and honestly, their parents and grandparents. Actually, the uh, the biggest demographic of student loan holders is actually people over sixty five, because essentially grandparents are either taking out or. Um, or co-signing loans with their children and grandchildren. So um, this is a massive problem. It's an escalating one. Um, and it, it is something I think the right, if our response continues to be personal responsibility, you signed on the dotted line when you were 18, um, and and even worse, kind of old economy Steve stuff, like, uh, you know, why didn't you work work that debt off in college? Well, um, a lot of, in a lot of cases that, college cost is more than the median salary for an American, right? So um, it's not realistic to think that kids between 18 and 22, likely with very few skills, are going to make anything close, even if they're working full-time when they go to college. It's, it's underlying um, all of this is the fact that college has simply gotten outrageously more expensive in the last two decades. And all of that is to say, this is a real problem. I think it presents the right with certain opportunities. Um, but I, I don't think that our current tack of basically saying, well, you know, too bad, you're stuck with it, is going to work very well for us politically. And it's not really going to work for us policy-wise either, because these loans, 93% of them are held by the taxpayer. They're held by directly by the Department of Education. You can thank Obama for that. Um, and so, can honestly- you explain what you just said, by the way? Because you're a, like a literal policy expert in this area. <laughs> when you say you can thank Obama for most of the loans being held by the federal government, by the Department of Education, what does that mean? Sure. Um, so basically, since the, the Great Society, um, 1964, the, the federal government has been subsidizing student loans, um, and they've consequently been going up and up and up, as all government programs do, and college costs has gone up and up and up because there's all of this, quote unquote, free money that's available to every high school graduate as long as they sign on the, botted li on the dotted line, right? Um, but in under the Obama administration, they brought all of it in-house. So it used to be more of a Fannie and Freddie kind of situation where there were um, intermediary loan, like loan banks that would be, um, there, there were private banks making these loans, but they were explicitly backed by the feds. Because uh, otherwise, there's no way, this doesn't make any sense. If, if you walked into a bank um, at age 18 with very little credit history, uh, and you said, I want a $180,000 loan, um, most banks will deny you. <laughs> So um, the, the federal government really has been the backer for these loans from the beginning. Um, but in in under the Obama administration, they brought it almost exclusively in-house. Right. So now um, if you are a borrower, if you, for example, um, I used to make payments through Navient, uh, which was one of those intermediary corporations, all of those loans, I now make payments directly to the Department of Education. Um, most people do now. It's 93 to 94% of those loans are all held by the taxpayer, which means <laughs> that when they inevitably do default, we will have a bailout whether we pass one or not, because the taxpayer is already holding these chips. Whether we pass one or not, I love the call. Whether we like it or not, yeah. Well, it, it also is just a reminder. You you said it was it used to be sort of a Fannie or Freddie thing, um, but there's no decision, right? The the decision to bail out, um, as you point out, is already one that's made. Um, and if you could, Inez, 
transition into explaining what your solution, at least the one in this particular American Mind essay is. I, I know we could talk and we should talk about all kinds of different policy solutions, but you have one that I think is, and, and you believe is, uh, substantive enough to, to really make a difference if it were to be enacted. Now, this is you can read this on the AmericanMind.org, and you should. Tell us, Inez, walk us through what you want to do to start taking care of this massive problem. Um, well, I think the short version is uh, the only winner in this game, um, the losers have been basically everyone, right? People who did get degrees at way too high cost um, now are stuck with uh, unpayable debt on the back end. People who didn't get degrees because we've so heavily subsidized um, this degree track with these federal loans, um, they're competing for the same jobs, for the same salary with a higher and higher proportion of people who have bachelor's degrees. And so employers are starting to add bachelor's requirements for jobs that did not require them 20 years ago. Um, so basically everyone is losing under this game. And then of course the taxpayer is losing because they're backing these loans and they're going to have to eat the cost on the back end. The only people in this game who are really winning are universities. So I think that the short answer is it is both just and I think good for the country that universities foot this bill. They deserve this bill um, because of their actions uh, that in any other context that I can get into it in any other like loan context, we would call it predatory lending. Um, they deserve to get this bill. It will give them some skin in the game going forward when they're put on the hook for successive bailouts, right? Any future student loan bailouts in um, even after this one should come out of university coffers. Um, and, and third, and here I think that you can make the explicitly conservative argument. I think everything I've said uh, up till now is something that certain parts of the left at least could agree with. Um, so the, the last bit is I think universities are just bad actors in American life. They're, they're not providing um, an education in, in uh, the liberal arts. They're not you know, pre preparing Americans for citizenship in this country. Uh, they're not um, making wiser voters, right? These are all laughable assertions in 2023. Um, so I simply think they're bad actors is the reason that there's plunging trust in universities driven particularly by Republicans and independents who are actually matched Republicans uh, in polling in terms of, of plunging trust in universities as institutions. They are the, the origin point of the woke mind virus, right? Um, to the extent that we're dealing with um, this ideology and this sort of cultural revolutionaries in every other institution in American life, whether it's, you know, the DOJ, um, the DOJ or other agencies or in the Fortune 500 in tech companies, right? The origin of this ideology in many cases is just young university graduates. And that's what they are learning. And that's what's being taught in our universities. And in an earlier essay, I called them woke mad, uh, madrasas, right? So, <laughs> I, is, so while we're talking about madrasas, I have to tell my favorite madrasa story, which is that the CIA by the Washington Post's account is still spreading radical Islam via textbooks provided to madrasas in Afghanistan from the Soviet years <laughs> as of like 2014. Yeah. First of all, I'm surprised you have a favorite uh, madrasa story. I have a hard time saying that word. Uh, you don't have a favorite madrasa story. You're simply not paying close enough attention. 
But that really reminds me of the fact that there was still uh, the UK government was still paying people in Scotland to walk up the hills and look for Nazis, uh, Nazi (laughs) well into the 60s. Uh, There were just people going up there having picnics and getting a paycheck from the government, watching out for those dangerous Nazi planes in 1962. Did Um, they find any Nazis in the 60s or had they all gone to Argentina? (laughs) <laughs> the planes would be coming from a different direction is that what you're saying yeah <laughs> maybe i will trips. say if that was your job and then there was a nazi invasion and you weren't doing it hmm. <laughs> and you know the thing is they given the way our, our sort of culture has shifted in the west they're probably out there now looking for brexit supporters <laughs> probably we're, we're off track uh, but yep. the point we remains... are, I have more off track things to say but i will swallow them <laughs> The Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski. Every day, Chris helps unpack the connection between politics and the economy and how it affects your wallet. Fix the problem, not the blame. With threats of persecution of political figures, how should you react? Is this a political sideshow? It just demonstrates that we're an unserious nation. Should Trump own up to his mistakes? Should we ignore the Manhattan investigation? Whether it's happening in D.C. or down on Wall Street, it's affecting you financially. Be informed. Check out the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But the, the point remains that uh, you know, as our, our federal government is such a, a Byzantine mess that we can be funding um, actual woke schools in the United States and then also funding like jihad textbooks and madrasas in Afghanistan. But uh, and as I wanted to ask also about the response you got to this essay Um and you, you're in this space and you talk to people on this issue uh, fairly frequently. When you laid it all out here, did you hear from any like GOP sources? Were there any conversations about what this would look like in legislation? Uh, were people trying to pick your brain or were people just like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard and exposing their Slavic bias? What happened? <laughs> um So I think there is interest in proposals like this. Um, And just to very briefly lay out the specifics, uh, I'm proposing on the federal level attacks on endowments. Um, And on the state level, I am encouraging red states to tax uh, university land, right? So to reverse the nonprofit exemption on the millions and millions of acres of very valuable real estate held by universities. Um, So I and and do all of this and tie it to uh, first of all keep the parameters of the Biden bail, uh, bailout if if that's if that's something that uh, makes sense and uh, just fund it directly from the pockets of the universities who caused the problem and are causing all of us problems in America ideologically by sending these graduates out into all the institutions we just mentioned. Um, so it's to me it's win win right. Um, I think we politically. We can deal with a popular political issue in a way that's fair and just, um, and at the same time, basically punish universities. Because usually, you know, you worry about raising taxes on something because you don't want to hurt it. Well, I have no contrapunction about hurting the university sector. I think they deserve to be hurt um, for a variety of reasons. Um, But I I do think there has been, I, I think there's interest in ideas like this from the more sort of realignment wing of the GOP or Josh Hawley's or J.D. Vance's. Um, I think this is something, I mean, famously, um, there was a joint uh, proposal with Bernie, but between Bernie and um, 
can't remember Josh Hawley or something uh, about putting university skin in the game, like saying that they were on the hook for 50% of uh, loan loan bailouts of their graduates. I mean, there are different ways of doing this. I like a direct tax in part because I think the elite universities are some of the most, most pernicious actors in this in terms of the country, but they are not the most pernicious actors when it comes to the finances, right? So um, I'm very comfortable uh, essentially taxing the universities that are making a huge amount of money and whose degrees are actually probably still worth the high cost, right? A Harvard degree is still probably financially worth uh, what, what Harvard is charging for it, but I don't see any reason to exempt Harvard. I don't uh, know. It depends on what kind of Harvard degree. Uh, say you get a Harvard degree in, in women's studies um, and you spend, what does that, a quarter of a million, probably more, $300,000 now? I don't know. Uh, I, I think that's a very lucrative proposition. I think that proposition makes perfect sense. You get a, a $400,000 diversity uh, a DEI job um, in in one of these major tech companies. Now, if those go away for other reasons, as we've discussed, then then they will be in trouble. But and, I actually, and they are. <laughs> they are, but there's still a lot of them out there. I mean, Michelle Obama was already making, speaking of the Obamas, Michelle Obama um, before, I remember, before or after... Barack ran for Congress, um, but well before he ran for president. But she, she was a, a diversity administrator for a hospital system, and she was making over four hundred thousand um, dollars, you know, in, in the nineties. So uh, these are extremely lucrative jobs. That's one of the things the right has to confront, I think, because I used to say the same thing. I used to use the, the example like underwater basket weaving, right? Uh, and I used to say, well, if, what if this was a private lending market? You can't walk into a bank and ask them to loan you $180,000 to get a degree in women's studies or whatever, they wouldn't fund you. I'm not sure that's true anymore, um, in part because they have created so many of these kind of BS fake jobs that to the extent that they do anything and add anything of, of quote unquote value, it's just the, the ideological policing, right? Um, these are these essentially political commissar jobs. But they are lucrative. So, I mean, look, you, you could do something very similar to this, and I think in a better way, just by cutting the funding um, to universities, by by gutting the loan program, you know, pushing everything out into the free market. There, I mean, I do think that's, that Harvard, your Harvard Women's Studies degrees will still get funded by, you know, Bank of America, but a lot of things wouldn't and a lot of universities would close. Um, and I think that's a good thing, but there's no chance of that happening in Congress. Um, I, I know I have personally tried for many years and other people more important than me have, have tried for many and many years. There is no interest on the Republican side, much to my frustration, at cutting these programs and cutting these programs. Um, because, you know, they're worried about being told, oh, we're taking away opportunities from lower income students, even though lower income students make up a smaller percentage of, of students today than they did when we started these loan programs. So they're having the exact opposite effect. Um, but there's just no political interest in it. And what I'm hoping is this kind of a direct taxation route will be more politically palatable, actually, to a sort of new realigned-ish Republican Party. Well, that actually leads me to a question I was going to ask, which is when the Biden administration proposed its actually implemented its debt forgiveness, which is now hung up in the courts, actually the Supreme Court. And I'll ask you about that in a second, too. But uh, when they first implemented it, Republicans uh, obviously were prepared to 
pre- they were prepared to argue against it and they did on multiple fronts because there were multiple fronts to argue against it the kind of extra constitutional measure that the Biden administration used the regressive uh, consequences that are manifest uh, the what, what you just said the, the absence of any other policy that would stem the wild growth in tuition nothing else there's just and then just plainly logically ethically the unfairness of the policy Republicans were ready to talk about that um, but in general did you see from the Republican opposition to the Biden plan anything that gives you hope um, in the sense that you know the Josh Hawley's the J.D. Vance's will be uh, not just willing to make those arguments when it's easy, but willing to uh, start being serious on, on the state level, too, and the federal level about uh, policy solutions, putting them on the table, not just talking about them when someone brings it up. Look, I mean, as with all things, I think it's more likely on the state level than on the federal level. It's just hard to move any anything um, through the feds. And this is definitely would require uh, a piece of legislation, right, uh, originating in the House and, and going through the Senate like a tax is supposed to do. Um, there is precedent for this, though, because in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, the, the Trump tax cuts, uh, there's a 1.4% um, tax already built in on university endowments, or at least the money that they're making, the profit that they're making from those endowments, right? Yale is like something like the eighth biggest hedge fund in America, right? These There's there's a few of these universities with endowments so massive, it is fair to describe them as hedge funds with a university attached. Um, and so... Apparently, there were some very like aggressive lobbyists from the top universities, as you might imagine, on this. Um, but ultimately, that tax stayed in. So this, there is something already on the books. I would, you know, argue we need to hike it to something that would actually make a difference in terms of bailouts, and that would likely have to be something very high, like 50 percent, um, in order to generate enough revenue, because not, you know, only a relatively small percentage of universities have endowments, you know, over any appreciable amount of money. Um, so so the, the pond isn't very big um, in terms of endowments specifically. Now, there are other ways. I mean, there are other ways we could tax universities, right? Endowments are just a small part. We could just treat them as ordinary businesses. Um, I mean, frankly, I think there's been more and more scholarship over the years showing that to the extent there's still a value proposition of going to university, it's essentially a, 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 um, like it's functioning as an elite club right? More than an actual educational context. It's that the children of rich people and smart people are mixing with each other in these universities and having that network um, is actually worth something, is worth something valuable. Uh, But it's really hard to see what the public purpose in subsidizing that would be, right? I mean, we don't subsidize the New York Athletic Club or whatever else, like... um, so it's it's really hard to say that, oh, but because these universities are sort of these elite credential granting, um, you know, good old boys club, like why why should why should a mechanic from Iowa pay for that? I'm really scared now that you said it that we're gonna find out we are in some way subsidizing the New York Athletic Club. <laughs> like I'm pretty sure that we are now going to learn in some ways the the Department of Education is doing that. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm only thinking of them. We had a great event. IW had a great event at uh, that venue uh, last night, and um, we had featured the Voices of Detransitioners. It was an amazing event. I think we're going to put it up at some point uh, online. 
but uh, they had a very strict dress, dress code in that. There were no jeans and multiple people had to like go around the corner and buy new pants and stuff. Anyway, so I'm, I'm thinking of like <laughs> old world, um, you know, uh, elite <laughs> waspy kind of um, network clubs like that, right? I mean, yeah. there's a good argument that that's, that's what universities are. They're hedge funds and they're elite networking clubs. And it's, again, very difficult to see why these are public purposes in any way. They're increasingly, uh, la- they're, they're increasingly uh, low focus on actual education is uh, transparent when you look at some of these schools that have nearly one-to-one administrator-to-student ratios, let alone professor-to-student ratios, that they're much more focused on uh, the, the priorities, legal priorities, uh, the, the cultural um, sort of program priorities not even educational ones but the like conditioning priorities than they are uh, anything else because they have as many administrators as they do students in some cases um you write here i'm trying to find the quote yeah i, I really like what you say here universities have used taxpayer generosity to situate themselves as little more than ideological gatekeepers to the halls of power and success. I want to take that point and ask you um, to just walk us through, because you know, this, we've been having this conversation as conservative movement since God and man at Yale and since before that too, um, but to walk us through how universities have started to function as ideological gatekeepers, specifically that term ideological gatekeepers, not just um, what a lot of people dismiss them as for a really long time, which is, yeah, colleges lean left. Like, you know, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. So like, yeah, Madison's pretty wacky. Um, and the professors there have long hair and wear Birkenstocks. Um, you know, it's, it's different than that. Um, and if you could kind of flesh out how that transformed or how that evolved, that would be helpful. Yeah, I think the important thing to recognize is this is all underwritten by a huge boom in taxpayer dollars, taxpayer-backed loans, right? Um, so leaving aside direct grants to universities, which is also a huge pot of money, um, but it, it pales in comparison to the loans that are sent out every year. And the universities get that money up front, right? Whatever happens with the student, if they default and it falls back on the taxpayer or there's a bailout and it falls back on the taxpayer, the university's got that money up front, right? And and we, we see in the, in the data what that, that boom has fueled, right? hiring. Um, and that includes all of that, you know, DEI facilities, right? The diverse, diversocracy, or I think that's what Heather McDonald calls it, right? The diversocrats that are being hired. Um, all of that is largely fueled by this taxpayer dollars. We're also seeing like more mundane things, like there's millions of, of square feet feet of new construction in the last like 10 to 15 years on university campuses. And a lot of it, all of it is kind of backed by this, this very perverse incentive to admit as many students as possible to the universities because each one comes with a check without ever like really looking into, especially for the lower um, sort of half of the ranking spectrum for universities, having absolutely no regard for whether those students are academically viable at the university. Um, and so what we're seeing is is basically a dropping of academic standards. Um, and we know that, by the way, because college graduates, only 31% of college graduates today can are what's called functionally literate, meaning they, they can read, 
Um, but they can't read a simple newspaper article and then answer who, what, when, where, why, right? Only 31% of college graduates can complete that task. Um, and that's that's in large part because the federal government has provided that perverse incentive for universities. And on top of that, because you're talking about, you know, 17, 18 year olds, right? Um, what they've done is pour all that money into a bunch of fun stuff, right? So lazy rivers, rock climbing walls, like huge gyms, beautiful campuses, dorms that are like way nicer than most middle class Americans <laughs> for them being, right? Um, oh my gosh, my dorm, I went to a private school, but my, my dorm, uh, for my first freshman sophomore dorms were pretty gross, but senior and junior year, my dorm was like a palace. Like I had a washing machine and a dryer. It was like basically an apartment. Anyway, just a personal anecdote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, our dorms in, I went to UC San Diego and our dorms were quite nice, especially for sophomore year, like uh, freshman year, you had a lot more people in a, a single dorm, but in sophomore year, they move people into essentially apartments, like with roommates, um, really nice ones, right? There's an incentive to do that because for every new kid, you can attract and send a uh, like glossy bro brochure to, right? Uh, that says, hey, like we have a lazy river and and uh, a rock climbing wall and amazing dorms and amazing food and activities and trips and studying abroad. Um, and just sign on this dotted line, right? Um, just sign on this loan. And most kids have no conception of what it means to go $150,000 into debt. Um, and I'm not saying obviously they're, you know, 18 year olds are of the age of majority, but I, I do think that it's a little bit ridiculous to think that 18 year olds should be like this paragon of mm -hmm. personal responsibility. Meanwhile, US Congress is creating all of these terrible and perverse incentives. And essentially we're saying, well, 18 year olds should be smart enough to navigate away from that. I think that's a little unrealistic. Um, and then you end up, the, the the one of the worst positions that people find themselves in when colleges are essentially advertising themselves with fun stuff um, and people do sign on the dotted line and then they find they're completely academically unprepared even for the dropping standards at some of these universities and they drop out most most four-year universities only have about a 60 percent five-year graduation rate mm -hmm. right? so like almost half of these students are doing the worst possible thing which is they're taking out debt that they can't afford and they're not getting the degree and so all they're ending up with is is this pile of debt that they can't manage. Um, and it, again, in any other context, we would call that predatory. We would call it predatory to send a bunch of brochures to a bunch of 17-year-olds in high school saying, hey, you know, pay us $150,000 to come swim in our lazy, lazy river. Don't worry about paying it off, right? Like we would, if, if it was just a bank doing that, sending them, I don't know, a tenth of the money uh, to go I don't know, to Peru for the, for the summer, um, we would, we would consider that predatory. Um, but for some reason, because it's, it's uh, in the university context, we don't think about it that way. So are there other, I mean, my preferred policy solution to this is probably one that you're generally in favor of as well is just dramatically curtailing federal subsidies uh, for tuition and the form of loans and the form of uh, other scholarships. And again, speaking of a Byzantine system, uh, this is another one of those Byzantine bureaucratic systems. But it's if you do what Joe Biden did, um, which is addressing a very real problem without addressing the root cause, as Kamala Harris might say, of the problem, um, what you're doing is making the situation much, much worse 
for borrowers down the road who may not benefit from the political uh, kindness, uh, the political cynicism, I should really say, of the Biden administration at a different point in time. Um, so I I've always seen that as like an absolutely necessary uh, thing to couple any forgiveness or any policy with. I, I don't know how else you tackle the problem, but my question to you is, um, how does your proposal? How do you think your proposal would sort of immediately start to uh, trans? Maybe I'll just say trickle uh, into tuition dollars. And uh, what other policy proposals do you think should be on the table here? Look, like as you said, the best thing to do would be to cut the government subsidies. Um, you know, it turns out that Milton Friedman and libertarians are correct about this. You subsidize something that, that you know, you create all of these unintended consequences, one of which um, has been to push up the price of tuition radically over the last 20 to 30 years. And people who went uh, to school in the 80s, 90s, even the early 2000s, um, we're talking 200, 300 percent increases in real dollars from that time. Um, it, it is astounding um, that, in fact, Tuition is the only thing that that actually has gone up faster even than healthcare costs, right? So we talk about inflation and healthcare costs all the time. Um, if you look at a chart of all the inflationary sort of trends of all of the you know important things, something we're all doing right now, even with regard to the you know deli meat, right, and eggs, um, universities have essentially been on that escalator for a solid thirty years. Um, basically, what we've all been experiencing with with the price of eggs. The price of tuition has been doing that for 30 years. Um, and it is because, and we now know uh, almost definitively that it's because of the student loan subsidies, right? So um, initially back in the 80s, people were first starting to postulate like, hey, why is tuition going up so fast or starting on this upslope? Um, and actually it was uh, William Bennett, who was uh, Reagan's uh, Secretary of Education, he, that's we call it his this this hypothesis, the Bennett hypothesis, right? He he postulated that in fact these government subsidies were causing the price of tuition to go up well above inflation or the base inflation rate. Uh, but we now have have a bunch of studies that basically prove it. Um, so the the um, New York Federal Reserve estimates that for every dollar of loans be that become available, the price of tuition goes up by sixty cents, right? So you can imagine every year there's another dollar available. Every year tuition goes up. Um, and so that's fundamentally the underlying problem here is, is, is cost, leaving aside for a moment the ideological, ideological problems and the fact that universities aren't actually educating their students, but just on ter in terms of cost, that's fundamentally the problem. I mean, if look, if I could snap my fingers, I would just do that. Um, I would just cut all of these massive subsidies. And I, I think we would probably see the university sh sector shrink by you know, 25%, by 40%, by 50%, I'm not sure, but we have basically a mass overproduction of universities and of degrees um, based on this. these subsidies that are going into the sector. Um, I just don't, I, unfortunately, I don't see, look, I'd be glad to be wrong. I, I've been railing about Republicans basically sponsoring their domestic opponents with taxpayer dollars over and over and over again on this podcast, on many other places. Um, and so have, you know, so has the Heritage Foundation. So has a lot of like kind of uh, solid conservative think tanks for very many years. This has been understood by the right since William Bennett and the 80s. Um, but I just don't see any movement on that question. So what I'm hoping to do with this proposal is to break through some of that gridlock 
and say, okay, well, if you won't cut the subsidies, we have to find some other way to control the costs and to make universities in some way responsible for this huge back-end problem of student loans and student debt. Because essentially what's happening is they're getting all the benefits up front, and then we as a whole, as society, are having to deal with the problems of that system downstream effects for for those generations buying houses or forming families some of that is financial and some of it has to do with really high student loan debt no and as that's a really good point i think the cultural consequences of all of this were long underappreciated by the conservative movement that was generally always good on the issues of subsidies but i think what people didn't fully grasp and it would be hard to fully grasp this um but still uh, is that it's not just that we're making people liberal and broke it's that making people liberal and broke is going to have all kinds of downstream consequences uh, that's the real trickle down <laughs> all these downstream consequences on uh civil society in america on our the culture in america you know when people aren't owning homes that creates different kinds of members of community Community. We're both renters. I'm not dissing renters, but it's a you're you're just a different member of your community on average, um, and you, you know you, it's less investment in place, less investment in the future, um, and and that you know, probably is not just led to liberalness, brokenness, but unhappiness um, and and discord. So as we wrap, if you could maybe just flesh out how people should think about that, um, because you do it in the piece effectively, that would be great. Yeah. Um, look, as I said, the, this deal, this and, and this is a policy choice that did not happen by the natural market or, or anything like that. Um, the way that we subsidize this university track has made universities very rich and able to act as those those gatekeepers. You mentioned earlier, Emily, act as those ideological gatekeepers. It has enhanced the strength of their position. It's allowed them to basically monopolize the pipeline to, quote unquote, the good life. Right. And more importantly, to the, the pipelines of political and financial power. Um, and that has all been done on the backs of taxpayers. And then for the students, right, you, you're faced with this very unpalatable sort of Hobson's choice, right? Either you can compete for those same jobs, which, by the way, due to a whole bunch of other policy choices, right, like offshoring, et cetera, et cetera, are fewer and fewer um, well-paying jobs that are, are uh, that don't require degrees. And every year there become fewer of them because there's so many, there's such a glut of these degrees now that employers can require a degree, like I said, for jobs that did not require them you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so that's choice A. Choice B is to take out way too much debt for a way inflated degree and then to compete for the same job that your father would have been able to get, um, you know, 30 years ago without taking on all that debt. And yes, yeah, you say that has downstream consequences when we're pushing a larger percentage of young people through universities, you're going to get a more liberal generation, a more indoctrinated generation. And we know what the consequences of that are. Um, and on, on the financial side, right, the, the average debt is now up to about between $37,000, $38,000. And that doesn't sound completely unmanageable when you think about it from the kind of professional class positions. Um, but the reality is that people in professional class positions have six figure or even, you know, mid six figure debt uh, from law schools and, and um, postgraduate degrees of, of different kinds. Um, but like the $30,000 is really difficult to pay off if you're just starting out in life and you're just competing for the same entry level job, perhaps minimum wage job, that 30, 35, $37,000 debt is 
a huge burden. And it does make um, it does make people delay buying a house, delay starting a family, delay settling down. And as you say, becoming sort of a, a deeper, more deeply rooted in a particular community. And all of these effects um, are all downstream from how much we subsidize universities. And while I'd love to get rid of the subsidies and I, I would love to see that happen tomorrow, um, the second best thing we can do is put the brakes on all of this by taxing universities for all of these problems that have have uh, popped up downstream from the system that has made them an enormous amount of money and made them very very powerful. That was beautifully put, Inez. <laughs> I don't mean to sound surprised. It's like you're insulting me when you compliment me. <laughs> I really was. I thought that was just, I was like rolling with it. Uh, Inez Stepman uh, with Independent Women's Forum. This piece is in the American mind. I just highly recommend you give it a read. It's, it's fantastic. And Inez did a, a little bit more fleshing out of it, even on NatCon Squad, which is another podcast we do with the Edmund Burke Foundation. So Inez, as always, thank you so much for this writing. And thank you so much for being willing to come on and chat about it. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. Anytime. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. I heard the faint voice of reason. And then it faded.